Go ahead and be seated as you're seated. Grab your Bibles. We are in the 23rd Psalm today. If you're brand new to church, don't have a Bible, don't worry. It's okay. We anticipated you being here. We were hoping that you would be here. Um, Everything I read from Scripture will be on the screen behind me, so it'll be super easy to follow along. If you've got a smartphone, you can download the Bible app. It's free. Very easy to follow along that way. If you're one of our journey people and you have the journey app on your phone, you might pull up today's notes. Everything on the screen will be in your handheld device. You can save it at the end of the day, send it to yourself in case you ever want to look at it again or send it to someone else at any point during the week. Um, And if you're like longhand like me, you might pull your notes out of the bulletin so you can follow along today in the 23rd Psalm. We're in week two of a series called The Shepherd. And we are looking all month long at Jesus through the lens of the 23rd Psalm, the great shepherd's psalm of Israel. Um, This series will culminate at our Christmas services. We have six over three days, Thursday, December 22, Friday the 23rd, um, all day on Saturday the 24th. We will not meet as a congregation on the 25th. We want you to be home with your family because we will have just had six church services in the three days leading up to that. But make plans not only to come at Christmas, but to bring people with you. I told our church last week, I'll say it again, studies have been done that say that 80% of people who do not regularly attend attend church anywhere, desire to go to church at Christmas, they just don't know where to go or who to go with. Which means if you have friends who do not regularly go to church and you know looking at their life that Jesus could help them, you have an 80% chance of them coming with you at Christmas if you invite them to one of the Christmas services. They're watching all their friends and neighbors post on Instagram being at church in their nice clothes and they want to go too. They just don't know where to go or who to go with and they're uncomfortable going by themselves. So don't come alone to the Christmas service. There's an 80% chance if you ask someone, they'll say yes. There's a 100% chance if you bring them to our church, I'm going to tell them about Jesus, which means we got a shot at at God grabbing their soul. So don't waste that opportunity. We also have another maybe ministry opportunity for you or someone you know. We're releasing today on our Activate podcast platform a podcast called Hurt, Hope, and Blended Families for the Holidays. You met two weeks ago Daniel and Brittany Brooker who both lost their spouses in their 20s. They remarried and they came and talked to our church about how to move through grief. We recorded a very raw podcast with them that very specifically talked about first Christmas without dad, first Christmas without mom. How, how do you, while hurting, find any kind of hope at the holidays? When is it okay to make that transition? And how has the whole blended family thing worked with all the in-laws and outlaws of your situation? I believe it can be a really resourceful podcast. Uh, I would encourage you not only to listen to it, but to think in your mind, who needs this this year? Because they're getting ready to go through their first Christmas without someone who was there last year who isn't there this year. I think it could be a huge ministry resource, um, a huge comfort to maybe somebody in your life. So check that out on the way home. It's live now and send it to somebody before Christmas if you believe that it could help them. I introduced you last week to a pastor from the Pacific Northwest named Eugene Peterson who over the course of about 15 years tried to write the English Bible, rewrite the English Bible in his own words so he could capture the spirit of what he believed Jesus was trying to say. After 15 years, he published it in a a Bible that's called the message version of the Bible. I don't want to call it a translation because he didn't get it from the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic. Um, He really took it from the English. It's a great paraphrase of scripture to understand the spirit maybe of what someone was trying to say. I wouldn't use it in my daily Bible study, but every now and then if you're trying to pull out, how would someone in 2022 say this? You can look at the message version and it kind of brings a text to life. When we do that in Psalm 23, 4, listen to how Eugene Peterson says David walks through hard times in his life. 
He says in Psalm 23, 4, even when the way goes through Death Valley, I'm not afraid when you walk at my side. Your trusty shepherd's crook makes me feel secure. So last week we were introduced to a shepherd who's always with you. We introduced you to a shepherd who desires to connect you to God. We introduced you to a shepherd who through his paths of righteousness, has satisfied everything that God would ask or require of you. We introduce you to a shepherd, if you were here last week, you remember, who fills you with life, like blowing up a balloon. He takes this dirt bag of a body and he fills us with spiritual life so we have purpose. But he said so many good things about who God was that some of you are living a life where your reality does not match what Scripture says, meaning Scripture says God is good and he's with you, which means life should be good, and you're thinking life is not good. David this week now talks about those days when life is not good. And he says of those days, even when I'm walking through the darkest days of life, I still feel secure. He said, God makes me feel secure. Here's what you need to write down. Because Christians live by faith and promises, and not feelings and circumstances. Like, we don't, we don't base our view of God on what we're going through in how we feel. We base our view of God on what Scripture tells us and Scripture promises. Because Christians walk by faith and promises and not feelings through circumstances, what David is saying is we are able to feel secure even when nothing in life appears secure. Some of you desire this for your life because not only does nothing in your life appear secure, nothing in your life feels secure. Your health doesn't feel secure right now. Your job doesn't feel secure right now. Your school or your college choice doesn't feel secure right now. Your finances don't feel secure right now. Your marriage doesn't feel secure right now. And David is saying when you walk through things that shake your life to the core, you can still, even though you're not okay, you can feel okay if you know that God is with you. Now, this is someone who knows what he's talking about. Because David did not have a life that you would describe as secure the story we read of David in Scripture starts with him facing a giant. There was no security in that. The story of David continues with fighting jealousies in his family and in his workplace and in his relationships. There was no security in that. His story continues with feeling tension every day of his life fighting enemies. I have a pastor mentor who said David died with blood dripping from his sword. He literally fought every day of his life. It was what God created him to do. Yet this warrior king of Israel who died with blood on his sword says, when I think about God being with me, I feel really, really secure. Some of you are going through something in life right now that is shaking your security. David would say if you could invite the shepherd into that or see the shepherd within that, you can feel secure. That's what we want to try to get to today. So as we pick up in verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 23, here's what we read again. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death... I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Last week, we looked at God's role as shepherd in our life. Today, we're going to look at our reality as sheep in the kingdom, and we're going to look at two realities that this text teaches us. Number one, we're going to learn that we were born into a world filled with death and evil. David is telling us his experience, but his experience has either been our experience or will be our experience. Those are the only two options. 
Our spiritual reality as sheep is we were all born into a world that is terribly broken by evil and by death. And when we read Psalm 23, 4, we read that. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear evil. Death and evil, right there. David said, when I go through death and evil, I'm going to be okay for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I was in Israel in 2018 leading a group. And we'd spent the day in the Judean desert, the hot Judean desert. We woke up very early in the morning, caught a bus out of Jerusalem, headed down to Jericho, turned south. We that day had visited uh, Masada, the great palace of Herod. We had visited En Gedi, where David and his men often hung out. We had gone to the Qumran caves where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, We had swam in the Dead Sea, which is both the most fascinating and disgusting thing you will ever do um, in your life. And we were on our way back up the mountain to Jerusalem. And when you ride from the Dead Sea to Jerusalem, it's all uphill because the Dead Sea is about 1,500 feet below sea level. Jerusalem's about 3,500 feet above sea level. So so it's like a 5,000-foot drive that's straight uphill. And as we were going in the afternoon, the sun was setting on the western side of the Jerusalem hills. And our tour guide was on the microphone. He was always on the microphone. He really never stopped talking into the microphone. There were times we would like him to stop talking in the microphone, but he didn't. So everyone on the bus is like sleeping. And our guy, Erez, is just going on and on and on. And he's just talking. He's just giving his spiel. He's doing his thing. And I'm awake. And he says something like this. He said, as the sun begins to set over Jerusalem, he said, you'll notice shadows casting down. And he began to tell the the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he said, this would have been the valley between Jerusalem and Jericho where the Good Samaritan was robbed and beaten because lots of people either came to Jerusalem to cash out and they had money leaving Jerusalem or they were coming to Jerusalem with money, so they had money. So this was a place when the shadows got long in this valley, it became a dangerous place. When the shadows began to settle in this valley, it became a place of death. And I grabbed him and I said, what did did you just say? And he said, I said, when the shadows begin to cast on this valley, it becomes a place of death. And I said, are you saying this is the valley of the shadow of death? And he said, where'd you hear that? And I was like, (laughs) so it's like one of the most famous verses in the Bible. You realize in Israel, these tour guides only study the parts they say. They never actually read any of scripture. And I was like, it's one of the most famous phrases in the Bible that God is with us in the valley of the shadow of death. And he's like, yeah, this is what Jewish people call this stretch of road because it's one of the most dangerous places in Israel when the sun goes down. What David is saying here is you are going to walk through seasons in your life that are both very dark and very dangerous for you spiritually. And on those days, it's very, very important for you to know that you're not alone. Some of you are going through that season now. In English terminology, we sometimes refer to it as the dark night of the soul. It is the most difficult thing you will ever go through. It is as if the sun has gone down and will never raise again, and there is spiritual danger everywhere. David said, that's the world that we live in. We live in the world of the valley of the shadow of death. Really, there's two worlds in this world. The first world is the world around us. David says, yea, though. Some translations say even though. Some say even when. We need to realize it's not if we walk through death and evil. It's when we experience death and evil in this life. If you have not gone through it yet, you will go through it. And you need to know it's as devastating as you think and maybe more devastating than you think. For those of us who have touched death for the first time, you understand what I'm saying. I was in seventh grade when one of my friends took their life on Thanksgiving Day. His funeral was the next week. 
And without getting graphic, what you need to know is they had an open casket at that funeral and they should not have. It was a poor decision. And it has traumatized me to this day. As a seventh grader, 13, 14-year-old kid, I slept in my mom and dad's room on the floor for nearly a month because I was so unsettled in my spirit. It was one of the most terrible things I ever went through. And I decided then I did not like death. And I did not like funerals. There are songs that were on the radio the day I went to that funeral and came home from that funeral that when they come on the radio today, I turn them off. It was one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. My senior year, my high school principal died. We had, um, we had graduation run through on a Tuesday morning. He died Tuesday evening. Um, we went to his funeral on Friday as a graduating class and then graduated on Sunday with his empty chair on the stage next to us. They had a closed casket at that funeral, so it was not as traumatizing as my seventh grade funeral. But I decided then I really didn't like death. I also decided then that, hey, when I die, keep, like, keep the lid closed because I don't want anyone to experience what little me experienced as a seventh grader. Um, it shook me. It shook me terribly. It shook me to the point where I thought, I don't know that I'm going to be able to be a pastor because I don't think I can do funeral. Like, I, can, I think I can do everything a pastor does but do a funeral. I don't think I can do a funeral. And lo and behold, my first year in ministry, our pastor was out of town. I was a youth pastor, and he called me and said, hey, Christian, we got called for a funeral today. you got to go do it. And I said, I don't think I can. And he said, like, no, you have to. It's part of the job. And I said, you don't understand. I don't think I can do it. And I told him a little bit of my story, and he said, listen, you're not going to have to interact with the body in any way. Like, just get your Bible. Go tell them about Jesus and how he can comfort them. Like, you'll be fine. You have to do this. It's part of the job. So I got my suit and my tie on and showed up at the funeral home, which was then Newcomer's Funeral Home on Metcalf, just a little south of 435. Walked in the door, asked the funeral home director, hey, here's who I am. Um, you know, I'm here to do the funeral. Where, like, where do you want me to go? And he pointed to the room and he said, in there. And I said, where do I speak? And he said, the family would like you to speak from behind the casket. And I said, are you freaking kidding me? Like right now? Like, <laughs> did my pastor call you and tell you to say that? He's like, no, the family would like you to speak from the casket. And it was a visitation at the time, so it was open. And I said, are they going to close it? And he said, no, but you can put your Bible on the closed part. And I thought, I'm going to have a panic attack like right here and right now. My first funeral, I spoke with my Bible laid open on a casket that was open, kind of like this the whole time, thinking if she ain't dead, she will be if she flinches. Because like, I, I am not... I am not playing around, and I do not like this at all right now. <laughs> it's not if. It's not if. It's when. And it's traumatic, and it's brutal, and it's over and over and over and over and over again. The question is, what is your plan when you walk through that? I have found that one of the Easiest ways to have conversations apologetically with atheists who don't believe in God is to talk about the reality of evil and death because I've never yet met an atheist who does not believe that there's evil in the world and who does not believe that they will die. Haven't met one yet who doesn't believe there's evil, who doesn't believe that they'll die. And it's really easy to say, and what is your solution to that problem? And what is your security for the next life if there is one?
because evil and death are so prevalent and they're so real. And David says you're going to go through them. I heard a pastor preaching on this text a couple weeks ago that said there are not enough essential oils and organic food in the world to keep you from the evil and the death that's coming. It's the world around us that we live in. But it's also the world within us. It's not just the world around us, it's the world within us. So David will say, your rod and your staff will comfort me. The primary role of the shepherd for the sheep was to protect them from enemies on the outside and enemies on the inside. So he talks about two tools that the shepherd would have, a rod and a staff, one to protect them from wolves and predators, one to attack them from cliffs that they would walk off. The rod was kind of a short club that would probably look like a baseball bat in our day, and a shepherd would use that to defend the sheep against any outsiders that wanted to attack them. But the staff is very much what you see when you think of a shepherd's staff with a little hook on the end or just a really long stick. And the staff was used to protect the sheep from itself because sheep are the most self-seeking, self-serving, unaware animals on the face of the planet. They're usually looking down for their next bite or they're looking for a place to lay down and rest. They are totally consumed with self. They never look up at anything else in the world. So they need someone looking on their behalf. I don't know if you know this if you're new to church, but the Bible calls us sheep. Self-seeking, self-serving, always making it about us, figuring out where our next bite or our next rest is gonna come, not often looking around at the things that the shepherd sees. So we were driving one day from Galilee in the north of Israel down to Jerusalem on I-90 through the west bank of Israel. And we passed a, probably a group of four or five shepherds who were standing together with a flock of more than 50 but less than 100 sheep and goats. And they were standing, if you can picture it in your head, they had built a fence. The shepherds were the fence post and they each had their staff at their side going horizontally and there literally was like four of them, and they had built what looked like a fence on the side of the road. And I asked our guide, I said, what are they doing? And he said, those sheep are so dumb that they would run right out in front of this 56-passenger bus trying to get to the other side to get a bite to eat. So if that shepherd doesn't use that staff to keep them from themselves and their desires, like they'd be dead. And I thought, that's, like, that's brilliant. And what a picture that is for what Jesus does for us who left to ourselves would get flat run over by life looking for the next thing and not seeing the big picture of the world and who God is. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do any of you have more than one child? Anybody with more than one child? Would anyone say, for those of you with multiple children, that you have one child who leans cautious and one child who leans careless? We do. My son Christian leans cautious. My daughter Casey doesn't lean careless. It could be her middle name. Like she just, when she was younger, just unaware like, that th things could go wrong. I remember when we were teaching Casey to swim, her brother, two years older than her, had already learned how to swim. And when we were trying to teach Casey to swim and we got in the pool with her and we're trying to kind of like lead her, she screamed three words over and over and over and over and over again. And what do you think those three words might have been? Let me go, let me go, let me go, let me go, let me go. After about 13 times, I thought, all right, like, <laughs> all right. 
I don't know if she'll swim, but she'll stop saying that over and over and over. And Danielle was like, no, no, no. <laughs> you can't let her go. She doesn't know how to swim. First time we were in Colorado skiing, we took her and Christian to a little ski school. Man, Christian was so like cautious and slow. Casey pointed her skis down the hill and to the ski instructor behind her that was holding the belt. What do you think she was saying? Let me go. 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 We are born telling Jesus, let me go. Let me go. I can do it. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to let you go. I've got to protect you from yourself and what you don't know yet. See, David said, your rod and your staff, they come for me. How can it be comforting to know that, that God is trying to remove enemies inside you? Because his promise is that he's trying to lead you on the paths of righteousness. He's trying to lead you in a life that will connect you to God eternally. And David said, I'm comfortable knowing not only that Jesus fights for me, but that Jesus will fight against me if he has to in order to fight for me. Jesus is so serious about fighting for my soul, connecting it to God, that he will fight against my soul if he has to. Now, biblically speaking, this is called conviction, and it is the job of the Holy Spirit to do that. Let me give you a picture of what this should look like in your life. I had a, I had a friend who's in this service, so I'll, I'll, I'll look away, but now you know he's sitting over there, so Whatever. He told me a couple months ago when he told, he was at another church, and he told his pastor, um, I'm going to start going to Journey. We got friends over there, kids, like just kind of our communities at Journey. So I think we're going to start going to Journey. His pastor said, oh, you can't go to Journey. He said, why? He said, everybody at Journey cusses. And I thought, well, not everybody. I mean, <laughs> probably too many, but not like, not everybody. Um, and I said, why would he say that? And he said, his kid is on a soccer team with like a bunch of journey families. And they like, they just cut it loose around the soccer game. And I said, who are they? <laughs> he gave me a couple of names and I said, yeah, 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 yeah. They don't, yeah, yeah, they cuss. Um, they do. But like, they're all like brand new Christians. Like, they've not been in church their whole life. Some of them don't know any better, or they're just beginning to hear the Holy Spirit say, like, don't do that. I told you, because I have the unspiritual gift of sarcasm, and I like to cause trouble, one of my first thoughts is we're going to make a T-shirt. This on the front says Journey Church International. On the back says, some of us cuss a little. But then I thought, <laughs> it probably would not be a good testimony to our community. So I just thought, like, okay, so at some point I'm going to have to teach on that. Now, here's, here's a picture of conviction. For those of you thinking, is he talking about us? That's conviction. That's the Holy Spirit saying, yeah, he is. And I already told you, you should stop doing that. See, Jesus said in John 16, 8, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. The word um, prove to be there in the Greek language is better in the English language. It's the word convict. To convict someone to be wrong about some law they broke. So the Holy Spirit's job is to prove to you you shouldn't talk like that when you're a Christian. 
The Holy Spirit's job is to prove to you you shouldn't manage your money like that when you're a Christian. The Holy Spirit's job is to prove to you you shouldn't talk to your husband or wife like that, to prove to you you need to spend more time with your kids. Like the Holy Spirit's job, the staff of the Holy Spirit is to get your attention to move you to what God wants to do in your life. And listen, he would love for it to be a gentle movement, but he will hit you over the head if he has to. I prayed with a young dad after our 8.30 service, whose wife this weekend found out he was having an affair. And he said, as I laid in bed last night, he said, God had to use the staff to get my attention. And I don't know what to do. I knew the whole time it was wrong. But now I'm in trouble. And the great message I got to give to him was, he did that because he loves you, not because he's angry at you. And it's more important to him that you be connected to God, then you be comfortable in your sin. God's really good. It's just, the way he, it's just the way he works. So David said this thought that God is fighting against my enemies on the outside, but then he's fighting against my sin on the inside. He said, like, that's really, really comforting for me. And he would say in Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Courage, for you are with me. Care, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Comfort Please hear this, your courage, your care, your comfort in the hardest seasons of life all come from walking with Jesus. When you walk with Jesus, it doesn't mean it's not going to be easy, it just means you don't have to be afraid. When you walk with Jesus, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy, it just means you're not going to be alone. When you walk with Jesus, it doesn't mean it's not going to be easy, it just means there'll be comfort in the really, really hard times. So David said, my confidence is that Jesus is with me. Here's my question, are you with him? He desires to be with you, are you with him? So in January, our January series is going to be in John chapter 15, where Jesus teaches us what it looks like to walk with him and be with him every day so we can stay filled with him. So I'm ending this year with a walk with Jesus evaluation. I put this in all of your bulletins. If you're following along on your app notes, it should be at the bottom of your app notes if you scroll. One side is to evaluate the things this scripture says cause us to be with Jesus. The other side is to set some goals after you've evaluated that. So you'll find out in January, how, how do I walk with Jesus? Jesus wants to be with me. How do I be with him? Daily time with God, spiritual community, prayer and fasting, serving others, generosity. That's what we'll learn in January. How did you do in 2022? How can you do better in 2023? On the back of this handout, it's a little QR code for our Bible reading plan. It's our goal that hundreds of people at Journey read through the entire Bible to learn how to spend daily time with God next year. This QR code will take you into an entire website that's been built out so that you can join a Bible reading group or get a Bible reading plan. Today at the Connection Center, they've got kind of a Bible reading exhibit set up with different study Bibles you might want to choose and different plans and different journals and just things you can look at for your walk next year. But Jesus is with you. Are you with him? David said, I'm going to make it. Courage, care, comfort. Because Jesus is with me. Okay, are you with him? Why is it so important to walk with Jesus every day? Because the world is broken and evil. And death is real. It's really hard to face those things without him. That's why. But the good news is reality number two today. The reality of being sheep. Reality of being sheep is this. There is soul care in the midst of spiritual danger. So is life hard? Yeah. Is death real? Yeah. Is evil real? Yeah. We gonna be okay? Yes, you can be. Look at verse five. Soul care in the midst of spiritual danger. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. 
Say, Christian, does God really show up in the darkest moments of my life? He does. Will God really show up in the darkest moments of my life? He will. So how do we know that? Because he did. The Savior actually did what the Scripture says here in the presence of his enemies, not in the presence of his disciples' enemies. David said, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Like, you are so literally not afraid of the things that bother me that you're like, let's sit down and have a meal right in the middle of them. Jesus didn't do that in the face of his disciples' enemies. He, on the last night of his life before his crucifixion, did it in the shadow of his enemies. Literally, if you've been to Jerusalem where the upper room is, it's in the shadow of Caiaphas' home where Jesus would spend a night in a dungeon. It's within a mile of the crucifixion site. It's about a half mile from the Antonia fortress where the Roman soldiers would beat the tar out of them. In the shadow of all of those places, Jesus said, I got less than 24 hours before this goes down. Let's sit down and have a meal. Let me make this about you and make sure you're ready. Let me make sure you're okay. You know, part of our problem is we went drive through Jesus. Can I get all the care and comfort I need in like 90 seconds? No. No. Jesus, in the presence of his enemies, he said, guys, it's all right. Let's sit down and share some life together to make sure that you're going to be okay. He wasn't the only one. David, the psalmist of Psalm 20. Three experienced this exact same thing on his most difficult day. In the face of the enemy, he experienced the shepherd making time for him in a way that totally changed his soul. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, the story is this. David had a small militia of Israeli warriors that kind of protected the Israeli boundaries, even while the king of Israel was trying to kill him. One of these days, his four to six, 800 men were out protecting the boundaries of Israel, they came back to their village where they lived and a raiding band from the Saudi Arabia area had come and they had burned their city and kidnapped all their wives and children. And they showed up and to say that they were overwhelmed would be an understatement. In 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, it says this. It said that David was greatly distressed because his men, his army, were talking about stoning him because their spirits were so bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord. In the face of his enemies, in the face of his worst day, in the face of all of his people trying to figure out whether they were still with him, David turned to God and said, is this real? Will you be with me on this day? And he was. And what we see in Psalm 23.5 is a picture of the spiritual care of Jesus. He prepares a table. He anoints me with oil. My cup runs over. Let's look at those three aspects as we move through this text. What is spiritual care from Jesus? First, it's a banquet in your honor. That's the picture. You prepare a table before me. If you read real specifically and in depth about the Jewish religion, the Jewish religion was a religion of meals. It was a ministry of meals. It was a ministry with meals. Almost every Old Testament sacrifice was a meal. Jesus' ministry happened primarily over meals and around meals. Go read through scripture. So much of what he unpacked to the disciples, he unpacked while they were having dinner together. The Israelis know how to throw a feast they know how to throw a party. The only cultural context I can give you is this. If you can think about Thanksgiving Day in America, they had three Thanksgiving weeks 
in Israel. The feast of the Passover was not Thanksgiving Day. It was seven Thanksgiving days. Some of the ladies are like, I can never be a Jewish woman because that would absolutely kill me. Um, the, feast of, uh, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles, seven straight Thanksgiving days. They knew how to have a feast. Weddings were not a day. Weddings were a week. Now some of the dads in the congregation are like, I'm glad I don't have a Jewish daughter because um, like, I would have to pay for a week of weddings, not one wedding. Like The Jewish people knew how to throw a party and David was literally saying, God, you are going to set up this feast for me and for a week we're going to check out of everything that's bothering us and we're just going to like be together and I'm going to be safe with you. It was this ministry of meals and with meals and around meals. One of our goals at Journey in 2023 is to do better at ministry and community and gathering people together. One of the ways we know to do that is to eat together. So when we plan this building, we build a big kitchen that we said we won't use in the first year because we've got too many other things going on, but we're going to learn how to use that kitchen to facilitate ministry. And starting in 2023, for those of you who are cooks in the kitchen, starting a brand new ministry called our Ministry Meals Team. And what we're looking for is men and women in our church who like to cook, willing to cook, believe hospitality is like one of their spiritual gifts to help us stop catering and start cooking so we can have the ministry of meals together as a church because Jesus in hard times provides a table in the presence of my enemy. This is everything from making meals to families who are having funerals and weddings to feeding our ministry team at times, to feeding student leaders on Wednesday nights, small group leaders on other nights. If you would like to be a part of that, scan that code. We would love to have you join that team. What else does Jesus do as part of his spiritual care? Secondly, he gives you an anointing of renewed life from the master. And again, we have to understand our Jewish context to understand what's happening here. So in Jewish culture, if you would ever fast or mourn for a period of time, on your last day of fasting and mourning, you read this in the Old Testament and New Testament, you would wash your faith with oil because they didn't have a whole lot of soap. Literally, you would anoint yourself with oil, and that anointing would symbolize this. My days of mourning are not behind me, but it's time for me to start life over again. It's time for me to step into, with this, with this being part of me now, it's time for me to step into a renewed life with this as part of my story. That's what anyone who went through a period of mourning would do. They would start mourning by tearing their clothes, putting dust and ashes on their heads. They would end mourning by anointing themselves with oil, which was symbolic to everyone around them that I'm going to start life again. I'm not going to stay stuck. The only thing that would be better for that would be for someone to throw you a banquet and to have the master of the banquet in front of all your family and friends bring his own oil and put his own anointing on you, which basically says this, we see you, I see you, I love you, I'm with you, and together we are going to start all over again. I realize this is part of your story, but it's not the only part of your story, and we're going to start again. Jesus gives us the hope of starting again, even with death, because he overcame death. And when David said he anoints my head with oil, he basically saying, the master shows up and says to the world, I'm with him, I'm with her, and there is life on the other side of this darkness. And we're going to go to it together. He anoints my head with oil, my cup runs over. What does that symbolize? Number three, it symbolizes a double portion of provision this more than you can use. It's not a picture of giving you something to drink. 
It literally is a picture of extravagant abundance. I'm not only going to give you what you can drink, I'm going to give you more than you can drink so you're never worrying about having to drink. I'm not only going to give you what you can drink, I'm going to give you more than you can drink because I never want you to worry whether or not you're going to have a drink. So I'm going to pour so much in that your cup will run over. And instead of wondering, will there be enough, you're going to say, stop, 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 stop. This is what Joseph did to his little brother Benjamin when he finally met him, when he came down, traveled from Canaan to Egypt. He gave him so much food that he couldn't eat it all, and it got everyone's attention that we don't know what's going on, but Benjamin has more than he could ever handle on his own. This is what Elisha asked from Elijah. Could I have twice what you have? Elijah's like, I don't even know what you're going to do with all that, but if God's good with it, I'm good with it. And Elisha gets a double portion It's what Jesus promises in Acts chapter one. When the Holy Spirit falls, he's gonna fall on your life and you're gonna have so much that you won't just have what you need, you're gonna have enough to go give the world what they need too. And it's what the apostle Paul told the church at Ephesus when he said, what God is gonna do through you, he said, is gonna be immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine according to his glorious riches at work in you. Like God doesn't just give you enough, he gives you more than enough so you never even have to wonder if you're gonna have enough. God's going to give you so much that you're not going to ask, will there be some tomorrow? God's going to give you so much that you're going to go, stop, stop, stop. It's getting everywhere. That's the goodness of our God. And I guess that leads to one question as we wrap up this service today, and that question would be this. Who or where do you run to in the dark night of your soul? And do they do what Jesus has promised to do? Who do you run to in the dark night of your soul? Where do you run to in the dark night of your soul? And do they do what Jesus promises to do? Like, that's the question of today's text. Last week, Jesus was presented as the shepherd who connects us to God, satisfies God's requirements for us, and fills us with life. He's there every day. Yay, that's great. David also wanted us to know that means the really, really bad days too. On those days... You can't even cook for yourself. He'll cook for you. On those days, you're not sure you'll ever move from this season to a new season. He anoints you with oil so you can. There's days you wonder if you'll ever have enough. He gives you so much you stop asking that question. That's what Jesus offers. And the question is, who are you running to or where are you running to that's giving you or offering you more than him? One of our goals for 2023 at Journey as our church has grown, our auditorium has grown, is that we would do a better job caring for people spiritually. Literally is one of our main three goals, that everyone grows spiritually, is cared for spiritually, and develops spiritually. So our ministry team was in Colorado meeting with some strategists, and we were telling them, we want to do a better job of caring for people's souls in our church. So he asked us a series of questions. He said, okay, if I walked into Journey and said, hey, how does this church care for hurting people? Um, would they be able to answer that question and would 10 people answer that question the same or in 10 different ways? And I was like, I don't, we have a process. I'm not sure that people know it. And he said, if I walked into your staff and asked your staff, hey, how does Journey care for hurting people? Would they all give me the same answer or would they just guess? And I said, I think they'd probably make it up. He said, how about your elders? If I walked into an elder meeting and said, what is the process Journey set up to care for people? What does that look like? Would they be able to answer that question? I said, I don't think so. And he said, then you're not going to care for anyone until they know how you care for people. And we spent a couple hours that afternoon putting together this triangle that's on the back of your notes that I want to give you today. Because maybe you are 
Like the young dad I talked to first time in our church today who said, I need help. I'm hurting. My marriage is hurting. Here's what spiritual care looks like at Journey. From the bottom up, on Sunday mornings, it's, it's really not our reality that we can care for everyone in the building on Sunday mornings. It's really not even our goal. Our span of care on a Sunday morning is about one to 250 people. We do that through the end of service prayer time. This area is never empty of people who can care spiritually until the room is empty. We also, most people at our church don't even know this, we have a prayer counselor in our prayer room from the time the service begins to the time service ends. You literally could have four hours of counseling every Sunday. They're always there. Most people we've never even told they're there if they need to talk to someone on Sunday morning. We also in the seat pocket in front of you have a spiritual prayer card. If you fill that out, one of our care team will get back with you like within 24, 48 hours. But it's hard to care for this many people at one time. So we try to get people to engage in ministries. Our span of care in ministries, if you serve in some ministries, probably one to a hundred people, probably somebody knows your name, knows your family, knows your story, checking up on you at least once a month, making sure you're doing okay. This is where most of our staff team, our ministry team cares. Some of our great volunteers and leaders care at this level. But if you want to be known and known, care and cared for on Sunday morning, probably you gotta be in a serve group. The people today that were checked on are probably people who didn't just come to church but served because they were in some kind of huddle before church. Somebody knew their name, somebody checked on them, somebody saw the look on their face, somebody saw the posture of their body, somebody's probably aware of who their family is. They're probably at a span of one to 25 with some spiritual care in our huddles this morning. Our best spiritual care at the Jesus ratio would be one to 12. Those are our discipleship groups, people traveling together, learning scripture together. Great spiritual care in our discipleship groups. Jesus closest circle was three people, Peter, James, and John. We try in a lot of our discipleship groups to have what we call triads, three men, three women who care deeply about each other. The Bible says if you have a spiritual community triad, you're going to do pretty good. Because while one person can fall, two can defend themselves a little more quickly. Core to three, a group of three Christian friends, they're not easily broken. Those people do pretty good. But even at the top of that is Jesus. I used to tell students in my student ministry, the only person who's going to take your phone call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year is Jesus. It's not my job. Don't place that burden on me. I can't be that for anyone in the universe. I've got one person who's that for me, Jesus. As you think about your life, who you care for and who's caring for you, you need to know this is how our church works. And it's our goal that everyone would live in this one to 12 ratio, or at least know how to get care on the day that you need care in whatever ratio it comes. As we close this service, the questions I would ask you is like, what has God said to your heart today and what do you need to do about it? As we close our service, we always have three prayer meditations that scroll on the screen. They'll all be up for a minute. And the interaction of this looks this way. This is the time the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart. I'm gonna ask you a question that hopefully will prompt a spiritual response and that response hopefully will turn into a prayer. At the end of these three minutes, I'll come back up. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'll give you an opportunity to receive Jesus and follow him if you think God's calling your heart to that today. And then we're gonna close by singing a great Christmas hymn together. So many people don't realize not only are every, is every Christmas song about Jesus, the Christmas hymns, but they paint him as savior in a way that maybe nothing else in the world does. So we'll sing a Christmas hymn together and then we'll dismiss and be gone. But before we do that, spend some soul time 
letting the Holy Spirit communicate to your heart by answering these questions. God, as we come to you in prayer today, open our hearts, open our minds, allow us to give honest answers and turn those into prayers so that we might walk with you through this morning's content until it leads to transformation. That's our prayer. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.